Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tired of the high costs of prescription drugs? The mysteries behind why some drugs cost what they do may be easier to solve with the passage of a new state law. Coming up, we hear about Connecticut's drug price transparency law. State Representative Sean Scanlon will join us later with details. Have similar laws in other states put pressure on pharmaceutical companies and insurers to curb drug costs? We'll find out. Now, it's no secret the new administration and Republicans in Congress have wanted to unravel the Affordable Care Act. We'll find out how recent changes may impact the types of coverage and the costs for ACA participants. We'll also talk with U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, who's a member of the Senate's Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee. He'll join us coming up. First, several lawsuits have been filed challenging the Affordable Care Act. The latest suit, brought by 20 states, targets the individual mandate or the requirement Americans have insurance or face a penalty. In a legal move that has surprised some, the U.S. Department of Justice has stated it won't defend the ACA, and this could jeopardize the coverage people with pre-existing conditions receive find out more, joining us now from the studio at Kaiser Health News in Washington, D.C., is Sarah Jane Tribble. She's senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. She focuses on the pharmaceutical industry. Sarah, welcome to the show. Good morning. And I also want to encourage listeners to join our conversation this hour. The number 860-275-7266. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, As I mentioned, Sarah, this is not the first uh, challenge attempting to uh, undermine, unravel the Affordable Care Act. Um, This lawsuit brought by 20 states, what are they um, challenging specifically? So just going back to the reference you made of uh, not the first challenge, since 2010, there's been numerous lawsuits on this. So let me start with just a little bit of history. And that is in 2012, everybody probably remembers a lot of attention about um, the Supreme Court looking at the Affordable Care Act and whether um, it could be constitutional. In 2012, there was a five to four nail biter decision. Um, The Supreme Court upheld the individual mandate with Justice Roberts writing that the individual mandate was constitutional because it used Congress's ability to levy taxes. And I mention this because it's crucial to what the 20 states led by Texas Attorney General um, is is suing over. What they're saying is that the because the individual mandate um, is is upheld, but on the basis of the the levying of taxes, that um, it's no longer constitutional because in December of last year, Congress passed a massive massive tax overhaul, as you might recall, a $1.5 trillion tax reform. That included a measure to make the tax penalty $0 as of January 2019. So Texas and the other states are arguing that, well, if there's no tax, then the Supreme Court said it wasn't constitutional, so no ACA. Now, what was uh, surprising to some was the Department of Justice's response, uh, uh, whether or not they were going to defend uh, this latest suit. What what was in the Department of Justice legal briefing that they filed uh, just recently? So the Department of Justice um, 
it's highly unusual, rare for them not to defend acts of Congress. It has happened before, but it, it's pretty unusual. On late Thursday, the Justice Department said it would not defend the ACA provision guaranteeing coverage for pre-existing conditions. Um, Attorney General Jeff Sessions said he could not find any reasonable argument to defend it. Um, now, earlier Thursday, three career lawyers who had been working on the case abruptly withdrew from it and did not sign the brief. So that's a sign of kind of the contention over this. Now, when they say that um, they're not going to defend uh, the Affordable Care Act, um, the the suit that was brought by the 20 states is targeting specifically this uh, individual mandate, this idea that, that um, the government can force Americans uh, to either get insurance or pay a penalty. But the Justice Department, they're just saying that they're not going to defend the Affordable Care Act generally? Well, they're saying there are some provisions like the Medicaid expansion that should stay in place, but um, specifically the pre-existing conditions that should not have to stay in place if the individual mandate, um, if, if, if it's gone. Now, when we talk about the uh, pre-existing uh, people with pre-existing uh, condi- health conditions and the idea that it offered them, ACA offered them protections uh, be, to be able to uh, get insurance and not have to pay uh, m- a much higher uh, cost uh, uh, than, other, uh, than others without pre-existing conditions, how many people are we talking about that uh, could, could maybe lose their coverage if this were to um, rule in the favor of, of uh, the, uh, the 20 states law? suit as well as uh, the DOJ? Well, that's a, that's a really good question because there's not really a great definition of pre-existing conditions. Um, I've seen figures from 52 million people in the U.S. to 130 million adults. But I mean, in reality, on in the marketplace as it is, a lot of people get their health insurance through um, you know, private health insurers and um, through their employers. So those folks are probably uh, fairly safe. They're probably still going to get insurance through their employers. It's the people who buy them in small group insurance and and on the individual market that would really be hit the, the most immediately. And I pause as I say immediately because um, odds are this is going to end up going through the court system. There's already a challenge against um, the Texas Attorney General. Uh, you know, even though. Uh, the Trump administration has not said they'll step up and defend it. There's been 16 Democratic states led by California that have filed a brief, and um, they're making arguments that this is ridiculous, that it's just because the tax levy, um, the tax doesn't exist, doesn't eliminate the law, so to speak. So this is already um, going to be an interesting court battle to watch, and many expected to go up to the Supreme Court, which could be, you know, a couple of years. Um, with uh, joining California and 16 other states, including Connecticut. Uh, this is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, with us from a studio in Washington, D.C. is Sarah Jane Tribble, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. She focuses on the pharmaceutical industry. Uh, we're taking a look at health care today, uh, specifically uh, changes uh, in the Affordable Care Act, including a, a, a recent lawsuit filed this year by 20 states, uh, Republican states that, again, argue that the uh, Affordable Care Act's a mandate um, and uh, is unconstitutional, but then we find out that the Department of Justice has uh, uh, filed a, a legal briefing uh, recently that they're not going to defend the Affordable Care Act. And so we're wondering about the future of uh, this plan that has allowed uh, more than 20 million Americans uh, health insurance coverage. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we uh, take some calls, Sarah, you know how uh, problematic is this latest fight over the Affordable Care Act as we head toward 
towards uh, midterms elections, because again, this is something that's going to be fought over in the courts, as you mentioned. But uh, we know that there are polls that show a majority of Americans, no, no matter their party affiliation, support the Affordable Care Act. So how will this play out? Um, is, it, is, it, it, is it something that's uh, dangerous for uh, uh, parties uh, to align themselves with? Right. Well, let me answer your question on two fronts, if, if I may. And that is one politically and one kind of in the marketplace in general. The, the simple one in the marketplace, um, real quick, is right now is rate setting season for the insurance companies. Insurance companies have known that the Trump administration is not a big fan of the Affordable Care Act. So there's a certain amount of uncertainty that they're calculating into that anyway. But this just kind of comes at a really bad time because insurance companies kind of set their rates over the summer months. And as they're looking ahead to January 2019, this puts a bit more uncertainty in there. That could mean actuaries are calculating the rates a little bit differently, or maybe they'd already decided there was more risk. So I just want to throw that out there because um, it's an important time for the insurance industry when they're trying to decide their rates. And that reflects on what we may end up paying in the future, right? Um, but also, very interestingly, is the political dynamic that's going on right now. Um, the Republicans have been a little bit split on whether they want to just completely get rid of the Affordable Care Act. Many of them have, um, you know, campaigned on that promise. However, as you mentioned, the pre-existing condition has been one of the most popular aspects of the um, you know, Affordable Care Act. It's been, you know, before the protections of the Affordable Care Act came in, people would get knocked off their insurance when they got cancer. They would get knocked off their insurance if they were suddenly diagnosed with diabetes. If you were going into the insurance market and had these things and you didn't have an employer protection of coverage, then maybe you couldn't afford your insurance in, in many cases. And it was very difficult to buy insurance. So uh, people really love that aspect of the Affordable Care Act, and even some Republicans have liked it. Um, now, the Democrats have come back and said, you know, if we have to work through the August recess here in D.C., then we're going to make uh, health care a priority. So it's going to be interesting to watch going into the midterms. Um, I don't think anybody has forgotten that health care is important. Certainly voters um, have rated it as one of their most important things to vote on in the coming year. I think this just amplifies it. Now, we're going to be uh, hearing from Connecticut's U.S. Senator Chris Murphy in, in just a little bit, but you can join the conversation if you're worried about the future of your uh, coverage, especially if you're under the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you can join us at 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Sarah, I wanted to go back to uh, this latest lawsuit. I, I've, I have read that you know legal experts have said this suit is a long shot. Now, why do they say that? Um, well, the reason they say that is because let's look at the history for just a second. There have been several lawsuits against the Affordable Care Act. It's been through the courts. It's been through the Supreme Court. And there have been many arguments made on each side. To find an argument now at this point where um, you can get rid of uh, some of the most important provisions in the Affordable Care Act, it's going to be a tough sell. And, you know, the New York Times had an op-ed this morning saying, you know, just read this, the 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 brief by the 16 Democratic states, it's got reasonable arguments in it to to say that it shouldn't be struck down. Uh, when we talked about uh, pre-existing conditions uh, for listeners uh, who are worried about, you know, how does this uh, then, if this lawsuit were to be successful, what are the repercussions for people who are covered under private plans? Well, I think um, there's two ways to look at this, and that is you know, we're going to go back to a pre-ACA market in, in a certain sense where insurers can drop you. Um, there'll be um, possibly some more high-risk pools. Some states had high-risk pools before where you would uh, join a pool of, of folks with 
um, more you know, more sick uh, a pool of, of people buying insurance, your insurance costs would be higher. Um, now, the administration has come out and said that they want to expand the market for lower cost and short term policies. Um, that don't have to follow the Affordable Care Act rules. These are policies that could say just cover uh, certain aspects, maybe not include coverage of um, birth control or uh, deliveries for certain people. These insurance plans have existed before. There have been many consumer advocates who say they're tricky, that it's difficult to buy a good one. Um, On the other hand, the insurance market says they provide a a niche that people need. So you're likely to see those um, plans expand as well in, in the coming months. Sarah-Jane Tribble, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. She's joining us from Washington, D.C. As we look at the latest uh, related to the Affordable Care Act, uh, coming up uh, after the break, we hope to hear from U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. We're also going to talk about why here in the United States uh, the cost of prescription drugs is so high when we look at what other uh, people in other countries pay for. If you experience sticker shock at the pharmacy, we're going to f- want to hear from you, too. Join the conversation. 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today we're focusing on health care. We just heard from Sarah Jane Tribble, senior correspondent for Kaiser Health News, explaining uh, this latest uh, suit filed by 20 states uh, looking to uh, saying that the Affordable Care Act is unconstitutional uh, given the fact that the GOP-backed tax law that went into effect actually repealed the penalty related to the individual mandate. Uh, Surprising to some was the Department of Justice's stance that they're not going to defend uh, the ACA uh, in this suit. Joining us now uh, by phone is U.S. Senator Chris Murphy. He sits on uh, the Senate uh, Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Senator Murphy, thanks for calling in. Yeah, thanks for having me this morning. Uh, So what is your reaction to the Department of Justice uh, stance on not defending uh, the ACA? Well, at the same time, it's very disappointing, but not surprising. The Trump administration has waged a pretty consistent assault campaign trying to undermine the American health care system, trying to destroy the Affordable Care Act, given that they couldn't convince Congress to do it. Uh, and this is just the latest step in that campaign. I don't think there's any merit to this lawsuit, so I'm not terribly worried that it's going to succeed, especially given the fact that the Congress did explicitly uh, keep those protections, even though it repealed the individual mandate. Uh, what it does do is continue to telegraph to the insurance companies that this sabotage campaign has no end. And it's going to, I think, prompt the insurance companies to, um, you know, try to protect themselves and pass along even bigger premium increases, knowing that they're not going to be getting any help in covering uh, sick people, people with pre-existing conditions from this administration. Uh, now, you, you touched on my next question, Senator Murphy, because as we see these, uh, we heard from Sarah Jane uh, Tribble, she's also with us, uh, that uh, this uh, lawsuit will be in the courts for some time. Some expect it to go all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. But meanwhile, the campaign to derail ACA continues. And without this uh, penalty uh, related to the individual mandate, because that was repealed in the tax bill, you had said that it sends a message to insurance companies that, uh, you know, they're not going to be having a lot of these uh, maybe healthy uh, consumers uh, enrolling in ACA, and the, the, the price will go up because their risk pools are, are much smaller. 
Yeah, there's, there's a couple things happening here. First, as you mentioned, because there's no requirement that healthy people buy insurance, many of them will go uninsured. That drives up premiums for people that remain in the pools. But also the Trump administration has opened up a new set of insurance policies for people. Um, these are you know, commonly referred to as junk plans. They're plans that cover very little, that don't need to cover mental health or maternity, uh, but they do cost less. And so they would be, uh, again, attractive to a healthier, younger population, further pulling more people uh, out of the pools that all the rest of us are in. And so you saw in Maryland uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, one of the plans that is the most popular for people with pre-existing conditions having a premium increase of 90%, almost a doubling of premiums in one year. And the insurer there said it's very clearly because uh, we really look at what the Trump administration is doing to make it harder for us to cover sick people, and we have no choice but to dramatically raise premiums. So I'm worried about what's going to happen in Connecticut. I think you're going to see some really catastrophic increases in premiums. Uh, joining our conversation now is uh, Ellen Andrews, chair of the Connecticut Health Policy Project. Ellen, welcome to the show. Hi, Lucy. Thank you for having me. Uh, Senator Murphy uh, was just saying that he worries about what's going to happen with uh, insurance companies that participate in uh, health exchanges, including here in Connecticut, with this uh, continued um, campaign uh, to uh, target the Affordable Care Act and one of the most important provisions, which is allowing people with pre-existing conditions to have coverage and not be so costly. Um, can you give us an update on how many insurance companies actually participate in Connecticut's health exchange? Uh, I believe it's three. Probably should have looked this up before. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I think what's going to happen is we're going to get less and we're going to pay more for it. Um, these skinny junk plans that the senator was talking about, um, you may pay for insurance like in the, the bad old days, pay for insurance and then find out later it doesn't cover, you know, mental health, it doesn't cover maternity, it may not cover prescriptions, um, which are clearly things that people expect insurance to cover when you buy insurance. Um, and we're going to pay more for it because there will be some people who choose not to, to buy insurance anymore. We hope it's not a lot. We hope that people have come in and, and the number of uninsured has gone down. And we hope that people now see the value of having it and, and the, you know, the financial uh, relief as well, um, not just not worrying about losing your house, but there will undoubtedly be some people who will fall off. Healthier people will be more likely to, so the costs are going to rise for the rest of us. Uh, coming up, we're going to focus specifically on the high cost of prescription drugs. And we know that uh, U.S. Senator Chris Murphy uh, can't stay with us the whole hour. But before you go, uh, Senator Murphy, uh, what can you uh, tell our listeners about uh, how Congress can help uh, with the high cost of prescription drugs? We're going to hear about a little bit more detail about President Trump's blueprint uh, to, uh, uh, to help reduce costs. But um, what's your take on what Congress can do to, to help Americans? Well, I, I unfortunately don't think that there's anything meaningful Congress can do unless we are interested in doing what the rest of the industrialized world does, which is to regulate drug prices, to allow for the federal government to negotiate with the drug companies to get a lower price. I love all my Republican friends who say that we should run government like a business. I don't completely agree with them, but on the issue of negotiating for lower drug prices, we should. Every business out there uses their sort of bulk purchasing power uh, to try to negotiate better deals with their vendors. So should Medicare. Unfortunately, there's a federal law that prohibits the federal government from negotiating on behalf of Medicare beneficiaries, on behalf of VA and Medicaid beneficiaries to get lower prices. 
Um, and until you do that, I just don't think you're going to see meaningful price decreases. You can do things on the margins. You can uh, try to come after these um, companies that are buying up smaller drug companies and to eliminate competition. You can try to eliminate the donut hole, which still exists uh, for many seniors in Part D. But uh, until you really start coming at the drug companies, you're not going to make much progress. And until Congress recognizes that, you know, we run the country, not the drug industry, no matter how many lobbyists they have down there, I'm not sure that's going to change. U.S. Senator Chris Murphy, a member of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee. Thanks so much for joining us for a little bit. Thanks. Uh, this is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Michael's calling from Meriden. Michael, go ahead. Hi. Um, I just have a couple comments uh, about something that Senator Murphy had said earlier. Um, I think it's ridiculous to think that the insurance companies need help doing anything. You know, when the top 100 executives of these insurance companies are multi-multi-millionaires. Um, I don't see any reason why the American public has to subsidize that type of thing when, you know, all they complain about is their, their loss in profits, but they're making gazillions of dollars. I think it's ridiculous to think that the insurance companies need help at all. Well, thank you, Michael, uh, for your comment. I wanted to return to our guest from Washington, Sarah Jane Tribble. Sarah, were you able to hear Michael calling in? I did. And, you know, it's a valid point. I think consumers across the U.S. have been frustrated with insurance companies for years. I remember uh, sitting in Ohio writing stories for the the Cleveland Plain Dealer then. And uh, year after year, I would write about rate increases on the insurance plans, 8 percent, 10 percent higher than that. Um, and uh, the prices have gone up for decades, it seems. And um, I don't have the exact figures in, in front of me, but it's fair to be frustrated with the insurance companies. On the other hand, insurance companies, like any business, need to look ahead and plan out who they're covering and how they're going to cover it. So going back to what Senator Murphy said, it's um, it's shocking that any insurance company would increase premiums by 90 percent. But when the actuaries sit down and start calculating who they're covering and how they're going to pay for the increases in prices of prescription drugs and hospital bills for those patients, um, they're going to have to come up with a formula, and that, that formula is usually a higher price. Uh, President Trump has been talking about the high cost of prescription drugs uh, all the way back when he was a candidate running for president. This is actually what he said during the State of the Union address. One of my greatest priorities is to reduce the price of prescription drugs. And prices will come down substantially watch. And so that's what uh, President Trump said during his State of the Union. Uh, Recently, there was a a blueprint that was released, Sarah. What can you tell us about uh, some of President Trump's proposals? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, that that cut made me, it reminded me of another quote I've, I've heard President Trump say where he said it's just going to be beautiful. You know, watching the prescription drug prices come down, it's just going to be beautiful. Um, I'm not sure Americans are going to feel that way, especially if they go through the blueprint and read it. Um, on the other hand, they are doing some things, um, working around the edges, uh, to uh, quote Senator Murphy. Um, they are not addressing list prices, um, but I'll come back to that point. Um, the blueprint is about 44 pages long. There's a lot of question marks in it, about 130 question marks, I believe. Um, in other words, the administration is posing questions to try to get answers on things. How would it work if we did this? How would it work if we um, said insurance companies didn't have to provide as many drugs in certain um, therapy areas, those kind of things? So. Um, the three big things out of the proposal 
um, would be, uh, you know, asking Medicare Part D, which is um, the over-the-counter where a lot of people in Medicare get their drugs, 65 and over. It's the Medicare Part D advantage plans that many people have, saying, well, maybe not all the drugs have to be covered in all the therapeutic areas. So if, for instance, if you have a, a really risky behavior, sometimes um, the federal government has said, okay, an insurance company, you have to provide two drugs in the area. Now they're saying maybe they don't have to provide those two drugs. Another proposal in there would be to say that um, drugs on Medicare Part B, which are the drugs you get at the doctor's office or at the hospital, usually rheumatoid arthritis, chemo drugs, things that you have to have infused. Maybe we can move those over to Medicare Part D where they can be negotiated by insurance plans. In B right now, the government just kind of pays a, a flat fee of average sales price plus 6%. So there's not really a negotiation going on. So um, Alex Azar, uh, who leads HHS and, and and the administration have been trying to figure out and have kind of putting out the idea of having those drugs, those very expensive drugs, get negotiated by insurance companies and pharmacy benefit managers. Um, and, and then we can talk about rebates, too, which is another action point that the administration has put out questions about and they are talking about addressing. Um, so those are the big things. <laughs> Before we get to the, the rebates, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious about uh, the Medicare uh, the Medi- Medicare option. We know that they're a big buyer, and it sets the stage for prices across the U.S., but this idea of, of allowing Medicare to negotiate prices, that's not included in the blueprint? No. <laughs> the short answer is no. There's no um, no nothing mentioned in the blueprint that says HHS is going to uh, negotiate drug prices. Um, and the one leverage that other countries do use to, that, that would be very useful when you come to negotiating prices or negotiating anything really is to say, no, we won't buy that. And the government doesn't do that here in the U.S. We never say, we're not going to buy your drug. And that really... Uh, gives us not very much leverage in our negotiations. Speaking about other countries, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, Americans pay more per year for drugs than all the other high-earning countries, more than twice what the UK residents pay, significantly more than those in France, Canada, and Germany. How did we get to this point, Sarah? Well, I mean, there's... uh, (laughs) There are many ways to answer that question, but it goes back to insurance coverage and how we've set up the system here in the United States. Um, we uh, prioritize access to medications, and we say that nobody should not get a medication. And so that really limits our ability to say no to the drug companies when they put a new drug out on the market. So that's part of the issue. The other issue is once insurance coverage was invented and the Americans took full heart in it and employers started sponsoring it, for years, I think many of us didn't really notice our prescription drug prices. Uh, they were covered by the insurance companies. Um, our copayments were low. Our premiums were low for years. And then only in the last 10 years did we start seeing these high deductible health insurance plans really hit hard in our pocketbooks. And then once we saw that we had to have a $2,000, $5,000 deductible paid for, we started paying attention to our drug prices. And we realized that, oh, my goodness, they keep going up year after year. Sarah Jane Tribble, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News, uh, talking with us today here on Where We Live. As we look at health care, uh, it is complicated. In studio with me is Ellen Andrews, chair of the Connecticut Health Policy Project. Uh, I was asking about uh, how we got to this point. Uh, and uh, Ellen, you wanted to remark on that as well. Yeah. Um, uh, like Sarah, there are multiple ways of answering that question. But one of the things that happens in other countries, especially uh very formally in um, in England, is that they look, they have a, a, a group, NICE, that looks at what 
a, a drug is worth. If it increases, you know, maybe gives you two months more of life at the end of, um, you know, a, a long disease, that might not be worth as much as something that, you know, can cure a, a disease that affects a lot of people. Um, and we don't do that in the United States. I've been on two FDA committees, and we are, like, not allowed to talk about money. We don't get any information on the cost of drugs. We look at their, you know, their safety. We looked at effectiveness to a certain extent. But the cost is never considered in any kind of um, discussions. As a matter of fact, when, um, when I was just starting out, a, a more uh, senior consumer advocate said, no, I think a trap door under, opens under your chair and you go into the basement and you never come out um, if you ever talk about money. Um, but we do have a nonprofit. It has to be done by a nonprofit. And full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors, um, ICER, the Institute for um, uh, Clinical and Economic Review, that looks at this nationally for new drugs and finds out whether they're really worth more than the older drug that you know, maybe is almost as good or just as good and decides what it really is worth to pay for. Because these there are trade-offs. Whenever we pay more for extra drugs, families know this, government knows this, that you have to give up something else. And so that's a trade-off we should be looking at and other countries do and we don't. Coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about that structure, including uh, the middleman. Uh, have you heard of uh, pharmacy benefit managers or PBMs? We're going to learn more about them in just a little bit. Um, you can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Stephen's calling from New London. Stephen, go ahead. Hi, Lucy. Uh, thank you for joining the show. Yes, go ahead. Uh, this uh, past weekend, uh, I'm a family physician. Uh, myself and three other colleagues uh, put up a booth called the High Drug Price Listening Booth in New London uh, to gather stories from people about uh, any difficulty they had in paying for their drugs or about you know very high costs of, of drugs. And I wanted to just share with you the very first person who came up to speak with us, uh, who graciously allowed to, uh, us to use her story and, and her name. Her name is Louise. Um, she has a relatively rare uh, blood disorder called PNH, and she showed me her uh, United Healthcare uh, payment slip from 2017, and the amount of money that she paid for the medicine she takes for this uh, this disease is called Solaris, was one million four hundred and seventy six thousand three hundred and seventy three dollars and twenty two cents. That was her drug cost uh, in 2017, and it's just it's just astounding. Mm. Uh, and she has insurance to help pay for part of that. She does. And, you know, one of the things she said is, thank God, you know, I have Medicare. The one thing we heard over and over from people that came up to us who had both Medicaid and Medicare, you know, was saying, you know, what would I have done if I didn't have insurance? And she said, you know, I would have probably been gone 10 years ago without that insurance. Mm -hmm. Well, Stephen, thank you uh, for that story. I I wanted to, again, uh, shift now into how we get to the what drugs cost uh, when we go to the pharmacy counter. Uh, Sarah, I mentioned uh, PBMs. Uh, Tell our listeners about uh, this structure and how uh, they are part of uh, the uh, negotiation in terms of what we end up paying uh, when we try to fill our prescriptions. Right, right. Um, And yes, I want to just pause, though, because Steve made it a, a good point about the cost of the drugs. And um, CMS just put, posted, and they just started publishing the costliest drugs on Medicare. Um, they've always had a, a dashboard where you can look up some of the drugs on Part D, but they've really bolstered that since the president's blueprint was announced. And that's one of the things they're trying to do is use a bully pulpit to say, hey, 
uh, pharmaceutical companies, your, your, your drugs cost too much. So you can go to the Medicare dashboard now and look up the most costliest drugs. Um, it's kind of uh, drug shaming, if you will, mm. <laughs> to try to force the pharma companies to bring it down. Um, so the dynamic we have in the U.S. is a situation where you, know, you go to your insurance company, you buy your insurance, you pay your premiums. Insurance companies hire pharmacy benefit managers to help manage their drug cost. These are the middlemen, so to speak. The pharmacy benefit managers go to the pharmaceutical companies and negotiate a deal. I'm, I'm oversimplifying this process a little bit, but that's, that's kind of the chain of events. So insurance company hires a pharmacy benefit manager to negotiate with the drug companies to um, negotiate a certain and we have this number of lives we can bring to you, so let's get the drug price down to this. So then the pharmaceutical company will say, okay, we'll set this price. And then the negotiations between the PBMs, the insurers, and the pharmacy and the pharmaceutical companies will often include a rebate system where uh, the pharma company may uh, you know, discount the drug an extra amount if this happens. Um, and then there's a certain amount of money that happens in the middle, and that the consumer never sees that. But um, and Alex Azar, who's speaking at the Senate Help Committee at 10 a.m. this morning, he he leads HHS, has often said, and I think he's probably going to say it again today, according to his uh, published remarks, that the patients don't benefit from this scenario. That um, everybody benefits: the pharma company, the PBM, and the insurer. Somebody gets a cut off of that, except the patients. Uh, this is where we live. In studio with me is Ellen Andrews, chair of the Connecticut Health Policy Project. PBMs have existed for uh, many decades. Why are they getting the attention now? I think we're just, uh, people are starting to find out about them. People are starting to ask questions about the costs. And there's a lot of finger pointing. Insurers look at PBMs. PBMs look at insurers. They look at drug companies. Um, there's a lot of finger pointing around all of this. And it's very difficult to get at uh, who to blame, probably like most things, the blame, there's plenty to go around. Um, but I think the bill we're going to talk about in a little bit, it will go a long way toward helping us sort that all out. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Before we take some calls, Sarah, if you could uh, update our listeners that we mentioned these pharmacy benefit managers like Express Scripts, like CVS. These are both uh, companies that are now in the process of possibly merging or being bought by uh, big insurers like Aetna and Cigna. Uh, tell, us about, uh, you know, the comp- tell us about why uh, these insurers want to buy these PBMs, and is that actually going to be a good thing for consumers in the long run? Well, I mean, if you buy the PBMs, you can consolidate some, you know, overhead management, and then you have more control over these negotiations, um, and uh, it gives you more lives because sometimes these PBMs they deal with multiple insurance companies, in, in some cases, and you can get a bit just a big bulk of lives there, uh, millions and millions of people, then to go to the drug companies and say, hey, uh, we have this uh, negotiating power um, to bring back. I, you know, it's a system in which, um, and I don't know what the just, you know, if there's a monopoly question here on, on this front, but it's a system in which um, really you're setting up players against players. The pharma companies are big. They have a lot of money. The insurance companies are big. They want to be bigger to be able to, to, to negotiate better deals. How that works out for the consumer remains to be seen. We reached out to, to Cigna. They were unable to uh, send a, a representative or uh, offer one up uh, by phone. But this is what Cigna CEO David Cordano uh, said at the Bloomberg Invest Summit about insurance companies deciding to acquire, his insurance company deciding to acquire uh, pharmacy benefit manager Express Scripts. And it is with a primary objective. It presents the most significant opportunity to further improve affordability because we have an affordability crisis in this country. 
we cannot continue to pay for the rate and pace of costs in our country at its current growth rate. And again, that's David Cordani. Uh, has he been as critical of, of the federal government as uh, Aetna CEO Mark Bertolini in terms of, of uh, the federal government not figuring out ways to, to innovate and, and try to drive down some of these costs, Sarah? I think every business leader out there has um, been pushing the idea of innovation. I'm not sure how many times I've heard that word. It should probably be banned. Um, <laughs> but the uh, the private industry really wants to work with the Trump administration to push the idea of innovation, which also could translate to pushing the idea of uh, getting drugs on the market faster, which means making more profits off those drugs. Um, and it translates to the idea of making sure that they work with consumer groups and patient groups to um, secure their drugs um, market share once they get to the market. Um, and, uh, you know, the head of the FDA, Scott Gottlieb, he's very business friendly. He is trying to expedite drugs. He also wants to, you know, secure the safety of those drugs um, as well. So um, this is a business friendly administration. Um, and uh, they've been very open about that. We've been asking listeners if, if they're dealing with skyrocketing uh, costs when they head over to the pharmacy. Uh, Peter's calling from East Hampton. Peter, what's been your experience, and, and, what's you, and how have you figured out a way to solve some of, of these high costs? Well, I spend half my year in southern Arizona. I have a drug called Advair 550 that I take for my asthma. I have to take it every day. And when I buy it here in the United States, it's $500 a month. I can walk over the border into Mexico without a prescription and buy the same drug. The last time I bought it was $42.50. Wow. Same drug, same box, same product, same dispensing inside. And so for $500, I can buy a year's worth of this one drug for my asthma. And that's what I do. Well, Peter, thank you uh, for your call. Um, Ellen Andrews, who's in studio with me, chair of the Connecticut Health Policy Project. Is this a, a common anecdote that you're hearing, that people are, are looking uh, overseas to pay for these very important drugs for them? Yes. Actually, some states are looking for permission from the federal government to let people, uh, Vermont and Utah come to mind, to let people reimport drugs. Um, We'll see if they get it. Um, but yes, there are b uh, bus tours to get for seniors to get to uh, Canada to get prescription drugs um, from there. And But there are things that you can do here, and I think that people should uh, consider that. You know, in Connecticut, there was a recent uh, poll and looked at the um, – uh, the number of people, 35% of people regularly taking drugs in Connecticut um, have never, or I'm sorry, that's the U.S., have never had their medications reviewed by their provider to see if they can stop any. There are a lot of people taking drugs that maybe they needed at one point, but they don't need anymore. Um, and when people have those conversations with their uh, their provider, most, and most people aren't having those conversations. Providers say that they're only having it about 35% and only about a third of people they're actually having. They're saying, can, you know, what is this? This is what it's going to cost. Can you afford that? But when you do, there's often a lot of help they can give you. They can give you another alternative um, medication or even a non-medication option. People should do that. But I love what the caller did um, as well as shopping around. There is, um, I don't want to you know, endorse any groups, but there are places on the web to look and there are places to go where you can just pay out of pocket 
for medications and sometimes save a lot of money, even if you have insurance. This is I where would, I would also say that asking questions, um, if I may uh, jump in real quick, uh, that you know reminds me just recently the Trump administration um, sent out a notice, kind of put um, pharmacies and uh, insurers on notice about gag orders, and they didn't demand that they stop requiring um, that they didn't demand them to break contracts. But what can happen for especially the Medicare beneficiary or anybody who goes to the pharmacy is when you go to the pharmacist, ask them if you can get this drug for a cheaper price if you pay cash. Um, oftentimes, you know, there are drugs that you pay a copay for that's higher than the amount you would just pay in cash for. In fact, for 12 of the most 20 commonly prescribed drugs, patients overpaid by 33%, according to one uh, research study that I looked up, uh, and estimated that they looked at 9.5 million Part D prescription claims, and the copayment was higher than cash in nearly one in four of those drugs. So uh, the gag, lifting the gag rule is part of what you're saying is in Trump's plan. But meanwhile, if somebody wanted to go to their pharmacy, they could ask, uh, maybe not be prompt by the pharmacist, but they could ask what would be if they paid for cash and didn't use their insurance card, that it could be a cheaper price? Exactly, right. Um, yeah. Actually, in Connecticut last mm-hmm. year, uh, legislation passed um, taking gag orders off of pharmacists so that they can have those kinds of conversations with with people at the pharmacy. Yes. So you should uh, talk to your doctor, talk to your pharmacist. Uh, there may be a way to get your, the medication that you need for an affordable price. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank Sarah Jane Tribble, senior correspondent with Kaiser Health News. Uh, Sarah, you've been very generous with your time. We appreciate uh, your perspective on this important discussion. Thank you for having me. Ellen Andrews will stay with us as we move on now. And if you are online and want to share a little bit of your story, we'll try to take your calls after the break. But we're going to actually talk about a new law in Connecticut that aims for improved transparency surrounding drug prices. We'll hear about that right after the break. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Uh, joining us in studio now as we continue to talk about uh, health care in this country, specifically why we pay so much uh, for prescription drugs. I want to welcome back to the show State Representative Sean Scanlon, who sits on, he's a co-chair, rather, of the Insurance and Real Estate Committee. Representative Scanlon, welcome back to the show. Good morning. Uh, so obviously a lot of things happened during the legislative session. Uh, one law that maybe people don't know about that passed and Malloy has signed into law is this idea about drug price transparency. What is it going to do exactly? So my good friend and I, State Comptroller Kevin Lembo, worked on this bill for about a year. And the the premise is very simple, Lucy. It basically says that if we're ever going to control the cost of prescription drugs, we need to know why they are so expensive. And consumers, frankly, just don't get that information uh, without any sort of prompting from these companies or a, a large scandal like what happened with EpiPen. So we said, let's put a law on the books that requires transparency. And from that transparency, we can make informed decisions as policymakers about how we can ultimately do what we all want to do, which is to lower the cost of drugs. And so when you talk about uh, transparency, we mentioned PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. What will this law do in terms of, of how what they're negotiating and why drugs cost a certain price? So as you had said, and, and your guest had said, they are the, the middleman, but they're sort of a shadowy middleman because nobody really knows how much money is being uh, involved in the transaction between the PBMs and the insurers. And for your listeners, they know what a formulary is called. It's, a, it's the list of drugs that the insurance company that they have will cover. And that's a very, very important list for a lot of your listeners because that's what's going to determine how much they pay. There is not 
any information on the books right now in Connecticut as to how many dollars in terms of billions probably are being spent in rebates and how many of those rebates are then getting passed on to consumers. Thanks to this law, we will know both of those numbers for the very first time. And we are the first state in the nation, Lucy, to pass a law to require them to do so. Also, insurers have to disclose if they're passing the rebates back to the customer. And when insurance rate increases, tell us about uh, how the insurance commissioner is going to be looking at the most expensive drugs. Yeah. So every uh, year when the insurance companies go to the commissioner to uh, get their rates approved or declined, they now have to give a certain set of information that's going to really help us understand what's going on, such as the top 25 most utilized drugs on the plan, the top 25 drugs that were the most expensive in terms of dollars, and the top uh, 25 that increased over a certain percentage from year to year. For uh, health policy nerds, that is like Christmas morning uh, because we're finally going to get the, the hood of the car lifted up to see what's going on under there and, and from there make decisions about how we can lower costs. When does this go into effect? In 2020. Mm-hmm. Ellen, uh, with uh, the Connecticut Health Policy Project, Ellen Andrews, what's your take on this transparency law? Is this what we <laughs> what we need to get at the crux of the Oh, issue? this is definitely Christmas. Thank you very, very <laughs> much. Um, yes, we will all be pouring over those numbers. Um We've gotten sort of minimal numbers in the past, a little bit old um, from uh, the from through CMS. Um, we know that drugs are the main cost driver in Connecticut. Uh, we know that we're paying; it's going up faster. We pay more in Connecticut for drugs per person, and it's going up faster here than anywhere else, or not than anywhere else, but all but about six other states. Um, now we're going to have an idea of why and who exactly, you know, of those pointed fingers, who actually is. How much money is at the end of those fingers? So this is this is the start. I understand that people may look at it and say, well, how's that going to reduce my costs? We can't reduce the cost because it's whack-a-mole right now. Mm-hmm. You do something over here and then it's a PBM or it's a drug company or it's an insurer that um, that actually we should have been talking to. So we really can't do anything until we have those numbers. So they may not see uh, a dramatic impact uh, in their from their wallet uh, immediately, but you have to know, get the information before you can figure out uh, why these prices are set the way they are. Uh, I know that some other states have looked at this as well. Have you seen any indication that that's put pressure on insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies and the PBMs, Representative Scanlon? One of the big provisions that we didn't talk about uh, is that if for the first time, if a drug increases by 20% in one year or 50% over three years, they have to tell us why. And I view that as a way to hold these big companies accountable for large increases. Um, and I, you see this every day. I was just at CVS in Guilford yesterday trying to get a prescription, and somebody was talking to the pharmacist about how much the drug had gone up. And I was almost laughing to myself, thinking I was coming here the next day to talk about this. People just don't know why. Now we will. Oh, when you started negotiating, did you have to uh, water it down, so to speak, uh, to get some agreement? I mean, I sailed through, I think, the, the General Assembly, but you've got the, the lobbyists uh, that, that are in your ear as well. You know, uh, like everything in politics, it requires some compromise. Uh, you know, the Comptroller and I certainly didn't get everything we set out to do at the beginning. Um, but this is not a, a silver bullet solution, as Ellen said. This is the beginning of a long effort. I am committed to working on this for as long as I have the honor of being a legislator and certainly the chair of this committee, and there's a lot more to do, and we're going to get back to work in January when the session comes back. Marina is calling from West Hartford. Marina, we have under a minute. Go ahead. Hi, I just wanted to thank uh, Representative Scanlon for um, for uh, establishing that bill and having that passed because I think it's it's hugely important. Um, most patients with commercial plans through their insurance have largely been shielded from the amount they're paying 
uh, for prescription drugs because of coupon programs. So they think, well, there's no issue. I'm paying zero. I have a coupon program. But you know, little do they know that sure, maybe they've the drug company has met that fifty or one hundred dollar uh, copay, and then the insurance company is going to be picking up the tab for some of these medications that are about five thousand uh, dollars, which can be for some of these specialty medications. Um, and I one last thing, it all comes down to stock prices. The reason why we cannot get a hold of the prescription drug costs is because stock prices drive this. Drug companies will do anything and everything to protect their drug costs, to make as much money as they can for their shareholders. I know this because I worked for pharmaceutical companies. No one is out to... Patients' costs, patients' out-of-pocket costs are diametrically opposed to the purpose of a corporation. Their goal is to make as much money as they possibly can. Healthcare should be about helping patients and having a reasonable amount that goes back to the business to fund R&D. High drug prices are not about R&D. They are about stock prices. And the pharmaceutical lobbying organization in Washington, D.C. is very, very powerful and drives the narrative for 90% of this. Thank you. That's what I would like to say. Thank you, Marina. Uh, Thank you for your call. And Ellen, we just have, again, close to the end of the show, but your response to what Marina was saying. Yeah, well, I agree. Um, And uh, I think the really important thing that people need to remember is, ooh, you got a coupon. You have zero out of pocket. Your premiums are going up. All of our premiums are going up. We all pay for all of this. And it is shielded from us. We may pay for it in lost wages. We pay for it in our taxes, I know. Um, as well as out of pocket. If they're not taking it from one pocket, they're taking it from another. Well, was a big gubernatorial uh, election coming up. What do you wish we be hearing from the candidates, Ellen? Ah, well, <laughs> yes. Uh, how much time do you have? Um, there <laughs> not are, much. <laughs> there are several things that the state could do. The state buys a lot of health care. Um, 800,000 people in Medicaid, another 200,000 in the state employee plan. That's a million people. That's a lot of health care. And they could have a major impact on the market. Well, we've been asking these candidates to to agree to come on Where We Live, so that'll be one of our questions. Thank you, uh, Ellen Andrews, chair of the Connecticut Health Policy Project. Also, State Representative Sean Scanlon, who is the co-chair of the Insurance and Real Estate Committee. Thanks again for your time. Thanks, Lucy. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. Special thanks to Kion Wolf and Lydia Brown. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening.